Good morning. I'm Jacqueline Saunders. I'm a member of Fort Worth Press. It's good to be with you today. Um, in light of the circumstances of the last 14 years, it's possible we have a veteran or two among us today. I won't ask you to identify yourself, but if that's the case, thank you for your service to our country on this Veterans Day. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and this time in our week to study your word. Thank you that we're free to do so without fear. Lord, be magnified in our lives and incline our hearts to be obedient to your will. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Many of you have heard or have seen the music to Les Miserables. It's the musical based on Victor Hugo's novel about the French Revolution. Midway through the musical, there's a song sung by a young man, Marius, and a young woman, Cosette, and they're equally smitten by each other. There's also a thread running through the song that's sung by another young woman, Apennine, who loves Marius but knows that he will never love her. These lines are some of the wonderment and enchantment that Cosette and Marius sing to each other. They say, a heart full of love, no fear, no regret, a heart full of you, I am lost, I am found, a heart full of light, a night bright as day, from today, every day, for it isn't a dream. Intermixed with the words of this song are Eponine's words, these are words he'll never say, not to me, not for me. He will never feel this way. The song is, as you know, a heart full of love. Uh, I first heard it when I was 21. I got to see the musical in London. And ever since, that song has made me think about Jesus in a positive sense. And I don't intend to romanticize Jesus, but when something is true, it's true. Um, of Jesus, we can conf- confidently say that his heart for us is full of love and bright. As, he is full of light and he is bright as day. And in him, we, the lost ones, are found. So before I go farther um, and make further connections to the notions, these notions and John 7 and 8, I want to begin by taking a quick look back at where we were last week so we can see a trajectory in Jesus' ministry and his ultimate road to the cross, which is why he came. As we studied in John 6, we heard Jesus use a bold and compelling metaphor when he spoke to the Jews who followed him after he'd felt fed the multitude in Galilee. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We also saw how Jesus, I'm sorry, the Jews grumbled at and disputed over his claim that he is living bread. This alludes to the fact that, and that the bread that he gives to the world is his flesh. In this claim, Jesus alludes to the fact that he will become a sacrifice for the sins of the world. In this week's lesson, Jesus makes another compelling claim, makes two claims about water and light in relation to his life and the life of those who follow him. The narrative of John 7 and 8, which is the focus of this week's study, takes place approximately six months after chapter 6. In John 6, we're told the time is the Passover feast, and we know in John 7 that it's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. In these chapters, the discourses that happen between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are taking place about six months before Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. 
So because this week's lesson covered so much territory, I'm not going to focus on the conversation between Jesus and his brothers, nor the intricate details of the larger dispute among the Jewish leaders and Jesus. I will say this, that everything going on in John 7 and 8 regarding Jesus' calling his person, the work of the Father, and the rejection of that identity and authority, authority, these are all filling out the big picture of John's narrative that he lays out in John 1, that Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone, that he was coming into the world, that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, <laughs> and that the promise to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I'm going to look specifically at a few things. The significance and background of the Feast of Tabernacles, and even though Nielsen gave a, a background in the study book, the details bear repeating because uh, they say so much about the context in which Jesus makes these claims. I'm going to talk about Jesus' invitation to the thirsty to come and drink and his promise of rivers of living water and his further <laughs> claims about being the light of the world and the sun who sets us free from sin. I'm going to make some general observations about the Jewish dispute about Jesus, particularly their rejection of Jesus' identity and authority. So, to begin, six months after the events of John 6, Jesus went into Jerusalem midway during the Feast of Tabernacles. And as you know, his brothers, who didn't understand his true calling and his identity, they wanted to, him to go to Jerusalem at the beginning of the feast and essentially make a name for himself. The important thing to understand about Jesus' timing is that his timing is God's timing. We already know that Jesus said the things and did the things that the Father was showing him to do. His schedule was ordained by the Father, and so he waited to go to the feast. John 7.14 tells us that at about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So there's some important things for us to know about the feast and its rich significance. The Hebrew word for the Feast of Tabernacles is Sukkot. That's not a hugely important detail, except that it is still celebrated today. The Feast of Booths was a celebratory feast, a time of thanksgiving, and to worship the Lord of hosts. It was largely attended by the Jews, men in particular. It was probably the most attended of the three major feasts that the Jews had. People wanted to be there to celebrate the ingathering of the fall harvest of olives, grapes, and pomegranates. The feast looked back to the days of Moses and the Exodus, as it was one of the feasts established for Israel in Leviticus, and it looked forward to a day when God would pour out his spirit. During the seven days of the feast, the people dwelt in temporary shelters or booths, and it was to remember the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. During the feast, there was a daily water libation ceremony that followed the daily sacrifice. The water ceremony was one of great jubilance. Isaiah 12.3 is highlighted in this ritual. The prophet says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So what does it look like to draw water with joy from the wells of salvation? Each morning, the high priest went down the Temple Mount and filled a golden flask with water from the Pool of Siloam. As you'll remember, this is the same pool where Jesus healed the man who had been lame for 38 years. The priest was followed in procession by the people from the temple. 
the high priest would carry the water back up to the temple. It was a little bit over a quarter of a mile up the hill. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, a trumpeter sounded three blasts from a trumpet. The priest was met by another priest bearing an offering of wine. While the pilgrims watched the priest process around the altar seven times with the water and wine, the temple choir sang the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. These psalms recount Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and they offer up thanks to God for his love and mercy. Psalm 18, in particular, proclaims that God's steadfast love endures forever. The water and wine were then poured into silver bowls. It was customary for the people gathered at the temple to bear lulav. It's a cluster of palm, myrtle, and willow branches. They had that in one hand, and in the other, they had the ethrog, or it was a citron fruit. And as the libations of water and wine were poured out before the Lord, at the conclusion of the Hallel Psalms, people would, would raise these things up and, and shout their praises to God. And they would shake these things in remembrance of God's provision. In Jewish literature, it is said that he who has not seen this water-pouring ceremony has never experienced joy in his entire life. So it's important, it's really important to understand the bigness of this ritual and to note again that the people understood that the water being poured out was symbolic of the Lord's provision for the Israelites in the desert and the coming spirit that the prophets told of in the last days. So one had happened, the Lord had provided, and one was looked forward to. In this feast, rich with tradition, the water-pouring ceremony is a foretaste of the rivers of living water foreseen by Ezekiel, for example, in chapter 47. And when we study chapter 4 of John, where Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well about living water, Nielsen had us take a look at that particular passage in Ezekiel 47, where the prophet has a vision of water. Um... Flowing from the temple, the water gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and the prophet realizes it's a river, and it's not just any river, it's a river that makes life flourish. So it's in this context of the water libation ceremony that John writes these words, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his water will flow rivers of living water. So I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to try to picture that. There's this temple court that's just massed with people. There would be lots of men and women. And the dramatic ritual of the feast has just been played out in the several days of water libation ceremonies. And Jesus stands and cries out in a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This was the man who's basically saying to his brothers, I'm not going to follow your timeline to go to the temple. This was Christ's timeline. This was the moment. So we know when Jesus is speaking these words, he's obeying the Father. So you can open your eyes now. I just, when I, I love John 7, 37. And when I hear it, it's like an arrow in my heart. that I can see it. Just imagine that. If it, I want to scream it out. <laughs> if anyone thirst. Let him come to me and drink. But I'm wearing a microphone, so I won't do that to you. Um, You can imagine that he got everybody's attention when he said this. And he makes that promise. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
So in his commentary on this chapter, 7 in particular, A.W. Pink says, and I think this is why this verse resonates with me so much, Pink says, here is the gospel in one short sentence. Three words in it stand out and call for special emphasis. Thirst, come, and drink. The first tells us of a recognized need. Thirst like hunger is something of which we are acutely conscious. It is craving for that which is not in our actual possession. There is a soul thirst as well as a bodily thirst. And I think we've all known what that is like. So let's look at what it means to thirst in the spiritual sense. Jesus knew the hearts of men and women when he made this statement. He knew the soul's desire for something, the soul desire something more than what the world offers. The festival was a celebration of plenty, yet in the midst of this great ritual, Jesus recognized that man needed something more than water poured out in a ritual. Men and women needed something inside them. Then Jesus says, come. He was identifying himself with the source of water that scripture had prophesied. And even now, he's calling people to believe and trust in him. Then Jesus invites people to drink. To drink of Jesus would be to receive and to assent that which he offered and that which you need. And not only that, it's to enter into relationship with him. It's an ongoing relationship, one in which...